All right, St. Mark, as we continue our lesson this morning with the second half of Acts chapter 15, at least the second portion of our reading. And again, the big idea here is that there are some leaders from Jerusalem, some guys who are referred to in history as Judaizers, which are guys who, they, they properly identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. And they believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and therefore took all of our sins away. But they also added this idea that you had to continue to keep the laws of Moses in order to earn your righteousness before God and therefore finish earning your salvation. And so the big idea is they were teaching Jesus plus obedience to the Mosaic covenant, Mosaic laws. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were not okay with that. They were not okay with them coming to Antioch and teaching the men there that they had to be circumcised and obey all of these particular customs. So as a result, Paul and Barnabas traveled down to Jerusalem and they started this, this council with Peter and James and other leaders of the early church fighting for the truth and purity of the gospel. We're going to pick it up here with verse 12 immediately after Peter has just spoken. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Then the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Here ends our sermon lesson. To understand this event, the Jerusalem Council, you have to know a little bit of the backdrop and the context. Otherwise, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the backdrop is a city named uh, Assyrian Antioch first. Syrian Antioch is like the first major Christian church outside of Jerusalem. And really, it's an important uh, city in the whole Roman Empire. It's arguably, historians will say, the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. It's also uh, perhaps the first cosmopolitan city of the Roman Empire. In other words, it had drawn together people from all different spots of the world. It's about a half a million people clustered together, which would put it at perhaps like 10 times the size of Jerusalem. And yet it, it has this pretty large Jewish population, but it's not just the Jewish population. There's people from around the world, and that was intentional. So the city was founded by this guy named Seleucus, who was one of the generals of Alexander the Great's army. And when he founded the city, he noticed that based on the location, it had this like strategic location uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. And if you look at the top left-hand corner of your screen right now, you're going to see Antioch in the upper left-hand corner, but the upper right-hand corner of that map. And you'll notice it's just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea and north of Jerusalem. And because of its strategic point, 
So Lucas knew that it was going to converge a bunch of different people groups and a bunch of different nationalities. And therefore, when he founded the city, he not only put up this really large wall around the perimeter of the city to fortify it for protection, which was very common in ancient cities, he also built a bunch of walls internally in the city so that it separated the city into like 18 different ethnic quarters. Now, why would he do that? Intentional segregation. So Lucas did this because he's pretty smart and he knew that people groups have this terrible tendency to look down on others who are different from them. So everybody has this natural flesh feeling of superiority that what we do is enlightened. What we do, we have arrived, we have figured things out, and everybody else is a little bit backwards. We have a tendency to condescend towards anyone and anything that's a little bit different from us. And so Lucas thought the only way we're going to maintain peace in this city is if we keep the different groups apart from one another. The problem happened in the first century AD here when the Christians were sort of like metaphorically tearing down the walls within the city. And see, here's what happens. People have the assumption based on the way you look, the based on your uh, culture, the based on the geographic location that you come from, that you are a certain way, believe certain things, and they should make certain assumptions about you. We even do this today, by the way. So, for instance, you could see somebody who is perhaps uh, Middle Eastern and you might assume about their belief system that they are Muslim. Or you see somebody who is of Indian descent and you might assume that they are Hindu. We do this even within the Christian realm as well. Uh, Here somebody is from Italy and you think, okay, well, maybe they're Roman Catholic or somebody from Scotland, maybe they're Presbyterian. Somebody from England, they're Anglican. Somebody from German descent, they're uh, Lutheran. Somebody from the South, they're Baptist. So we make these kinds of assumptions all the time. But the Christians in Syrian Antioch were blowing up and tearing down those assumptions. And the reason, see, this is actually the first place in recorded history where the followers of Jesus Christ are called Christians. And you know why? Because up until that point in world history, you could make assumptions about what people believed based on their ethnic heritage. But the Christians had a higher priority than their nationality. It wasn't that they despised their nationality. It wasn't that they despised their culture. But they self-identified as something more than just their ethnic heritage. They self-identified first and foremost as children of God and followers and disciples of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the rest of the people had no idea what to call these individuals because they couldn't make these assumptions and so they, they called them Christians. Now, not everybody liked this mixing of cultures. In fact, one of the groups that didn't like it was that group that I mentioned earlier called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, again, they're a group of people who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures, that he came, died, rose, and took away our sins. But they said, in order to become righteous before God, you essentially have to continue to obey the Mosaic ceremonial laws. All those laws like dietary restrictions and Sabbath regulations and for men, circumcision. And therefore, they said, if you're going to really be a believer of God and really be a child of God, you must continue to be obedient of these things. And so what they did is they came from the church in Jerusalem, some of these Pharisee Judaizers, and they insisted that the men in Syrian Antioch be circumcised. Now, it, it, again, it isn't just an issue of circumcision. Circumcision is like shorthand in the New Testament for obedience to the Mosaic laws. 
But note that circumcision also was a big hurdle to cross for a lot of these adult Gentile men. In the ancient world, a surgery like this is a pretty, fairly dangerous and a pretty significant surgery. And therefore, it could very easily become an obstacle to following Jesus if, in fact, it was a requirement to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And see, herein lies the question. In order to become a Christian, do you have to become a Jew first? That's what they're wrestling with. If I am going to be a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, do I have to convert essentially to Jewish culture? And the Judaizers resoundingly said, yes, absolutely. Paul and Barnabas, however, were not okay with that because it's not in line with the good news of Jesus Christ. And what they did is they marched on up to Jerusalem and they met with the other early church leaders there like Peter and James, who is the brother of Jesus and the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem, and they held a series of meetings that are known in history as the Jerusalem Council. So far as I can tell, it is the single most important assembly and event like this in the early Christian church. And a lot of Christians have either never heard about it or can't explain it real well. So we want to talk about what, it, what it's all about here today. It's really a, recorded for us as a series of three speeches. Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James. And Peter says, here's what God has done in his ministry to the Gentiles in recent past. Paul and Barnabas get up and say, here is what God is doing in his ministry to the Gentiles right now. And James says, okay, moving forward, here's how we're going to minister to the Gentiles with the gospel. Okay, so just covering these three real quick. First of all, Peter. Peter, remember, before the apostle Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles, God had sent Peter to the Gentiles. Remember, he goes, first of all, in Acts 8, he goes to the Samaritans and he proclaims the gospel to them and he's blown away at the work that the Holy Spirit is doing amongst the Samaritans. Then a couple chapters later in Acts 10, uh, Peter receives this very provocative vision where all these unclean meat, uh, according to the Jewish law, unclean meat was rolling down out of heaven and he's like, Lord, I will not eat this. I will not defile myself with such terrible, wicked, unclean things. And God responds to him by saying, Peter, don't you dare call something unclean which I have made clean. And this is all kind of a big metaphor for Peter. And very next thing God tells him to do is he says, I want you to go to the home of Cornelius, this Roman centurion in Caesarea, and I want you to minister to him and I want you to baptize him into the Christian faith. And sure enough, Peter goes there and the idea of a Jewish leader or a Jewish rabbi entering into the home of a Gentile individual and defiling himself that way was just it was like unconscionable to the early Jews. And yet Peter does this and he sees the Holy Spirit working in Cornelius' home. And he sees, ah, now I get it. God's gospel, Jesus Christ, is intended for all mankind. And there is the reason why Peter gets up and says what we read a little bit earlier in verses 10 and 11. He says, now then, you Jewish leaders here in Jerusalem, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke, a burden, that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. You know what Peter's doing here? He is admitting that, look, we Jews who were born and raised with the Mosaic Law, even we were not able to leverage the laws of Moses in order to earn our salvation. Even we required Jesus Christ, God himself, to come to earth and die to take our sins away. And if, look, we who had, were born and raised with the law, if we couldn't leverage the law to earn our salvation, why on earth would we think Gentiles who are new to this law would be able to use the law to earn their salvation? They can't. 
They're saved only by grace, and therefore we have no right to foist upon them the burden of the Mosaic law. Peter gets done with his speech, and then Paul and Barnabas get up. And they say, yeah, Peter's right. In fact, we've just gotten back from our, you know, missionary work. And Paul and Barnabas are like the first global missionaries around the Mediterranean world, and they are the first church planters. And they say, here's what we saw. We saw Gentiles uh, repent of their sins, turn from their idols, profess their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this was all validated because the Holy Spirit worked supernatural signs and wonders amongst all of them. And he did it all apart from the Jewish Mosaic laws. And therefore, they don't need those in order to be children of God. Last but not least, James gets up. And James, by the way, is, again, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. He's the brother of Jesus, and he's the author of of the New Testament epistle that bears his name. And if you've ever read James's epistle in the New Testament, you know that he is not at all one who is quick to abolish the law of God. He's very, in fact, some Christians struggle to read James because it's in fact so law positive. But James affirms everything that Peter and Paul and Barnabas have now said. And he said, look, if you've really studied your Old Testament Hebrew scriptures well, none of this should really be a surprise to you. Why? Because the prophets were telling us all about this from long ago. And he reads a section from Amos 9, he says, which says, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. You know what James is doing? Essentially he's saying, look, if we were paying attention this entire time, we would know that God intended to shift gospel ministry to the Gentiles because he promised this. He said he's going to rebuild David's tent and he's going to stretch out its borders so that it's not a physical Israel, but that it is a spiritual Israel. And if it's a spiritual Israel, then it does not have local or geographic or cultural confines, but he can spread the tent walls out around the earth in order to welcome every people and every language and every skin color and every culture so that everybody can equally be children of God. He said this was prophesied from long ago, and therefore our goal in our ministry to the Gentiles is not to try to convert them to be Jews. Our goal is to welcome them into the family of God. And therefore, not only will we not force upon them the laws of the Jews, but we ourselves, Jewish leaders of descent, we will let go of some of our Jewish customs if it might mean that one more Gentile doesn't have an obstacle in coming to profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Okay, so that's the Jerusalem Council, at least for now. Um, some of you might be thinking, you know, this is not news to me. The idea that uh, Gentiles can equally be part of God's family in addition to the Jews, like, of course I know that. Everybody knows that. No, they don't. You know that perhaps because you're a 21st century believer in the Western world. This was absolutely shocking to first century Jews. And furthermore, what I would also say, you know, humans have a, a tendency as time goes on to build up certain things into their culture, certain customs into their belief system that they think are essential for salvation. And it does, we don't have to look back 2,000 years to see how obvious this is now, the gospel versus the, the way they understood it then. You can look back 30, 40, 50 years or 100 years and see things that people who I self-identified as Christians thought were absolutely essential in order to glorify God and today we look at them and say, this is insane. C.S. Lewis refers to this in his writings as chronological snobbery. 
It's the idea that every human being has a sinful pride in their flesh by which they think we've finally gotten to the point where we've arrived, we're enlightened, we've figured it out, and those people over there are foolish and regressive and stupid. Just be careful. Because 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, the thing that terrifies me is how people might look back at us today and if we are adding anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, how silly we will look. Let me give you one example of this. It was very clear to me this past week as I was reading through this and it it was just like shocking to me, but maybe I shouldn't be shocked by this. Um, I'm reading a, a book by a historian named Jamar Tisby. And it's about the American Christian church's complicity in racism over the past couple hundred years. And he gives a number of different examples. And one of the examples that he gives is one from not that long ago, 30, 40, 50 years. And he says, look, uh, Bob Jones University, which is one of the more famous uh, American evangelical non-denom universities down in South Carolina, they for a long time in their school had intentional segregation. On their own policy and on their own record, they said that God has created humanity into three different cultural groups and that those groups must not intermingle, they must not inter, uh, intermarry, they must not even date. And because of Bob Jones University's anti-interracial dating policy, the IRS, the United States IRS, uh, tried to revoke their tax-exempt status for discrimination in 1976. You know how the university responded? They sued. They sued and said, this is part of our religious freedom. You can't do that to us. And in fact, as late as 1998, now I want you to think this through, just over 20 years ago, in 1998, a spokesperson from the university, this is not somebody that's just like a, you know, a clickbait soundbite, somebody speaking off the cuff. This is a spokesperson who chooses their words very carefully. In 1998, a spokesperson from the university said, God has made people different from one another and intends those differences to remain. Bob Jones University is opposed to intermarriage of the races because it breaks down the barriers God has established. I was shocked to read that. Like just over 20 years ago, people who are calling themselves a Christian university are saying that kind of thing. Now, to be fair, to be fair, several years later in the early 2000s, the university walked back that statement and said, nope, that's not, that's not our position anymore. We disagree. Uh, and, have, and have repented of that. And, you know, all of us make mistakes in, in this regard. And so I'm not trying to be hard on any one particular person. All I'm saying is that's what it looks like when people take the gospel of Jesus and add their own man-made rules and laws that aren't actually found in Scripture. When they add their own, uh, blend the gospel with the culture that surrounds them or blend the gospel with their own personal preferences or their own crazy ideas, it distorts the gospel. And whenever, the Christian church has to rise up and fight against those kinds of things. Whenever humans add any of their laws or customs to God's word and insist on it as some form of God's will and holiness, it's destructive, it's disgusting, it hurts people, it muddies the name of Jesus Christ, and it muddies the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm being too hard on the early Jews. You know, they were born and raised from childhood learning that the Gentiles were unclean. You know, those Gentiles, they, they worshipped these idols, and they had these abominable practices. And for Peter, 
to get up and say something like, the Gentiles are clean simply because they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Never mind all the disgusting stuff that they eat. Never mind all the disgusting stuff that they've done. Never mind that they don't obey the, the, the Sabbath day regulations. Never mind that they're not circumcised. Never mind that they dress different, talk different, look different, all that stuff. For him to say, they are children of God simply because they trust in the good news of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That was shocking. It was shocking to the Jews. In fact, it was so shocking to the Jews that the first century Christian church was predominantly some Jewish converts to Christianity. But by the second century AD, the Christian church was by and large Gentiles because this was so much at some points for the Jews to get over. The Apostle Paul is constantly pressing on this point to not add anything to the gospel in his writing in the New Testament. One of my favorite spots on this is in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, notice what the Apostle Paul says here. It totally ties into what we're, we're reading today. He says, In Jesus Christ, you were also circumcised, but not with a circumcision performed by human hands. You're circumcised in Christ, but not a circumcision that is done by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying your circumcision, and by that, remember, circumcision is shorthand for your obedience to the laws of Moses, your obedience to the laws of God. Your circumcision was taken care of by Jesus Christ and gifted to you at your baptism. Your baptism cleanses you of all of your sins and it gifts to you the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Jesus Christ to all of God's laws. And therefore, you know, if you think, why do the New Testament writers use circumcision as shorthand for the law? Here's why. Why don't they use the dietary restrictions as shorthand for obedience to the law? Why don't they use the, um, you know, the Sabbath regulations? Here's why. If you think through what circumcision is, it's painful and bloody. And uh, without being too graphic, at the place where life comes from, the place where a man is most vulnerable, the flesh gets cut off and blood is shed. So think this through. What does it mean when the Apostle Paul is teaching that we are saved by Jesus' circumcision? What he's saying is at the cross, God took on human flesh and he got cut off and cut up and he was bloodied and killed and he was made most vulnerable as he was stripped naked. He was beaten and mocked and tortured and ripped apart from relationship with his father. And what happened because of Jesus' circumcision? Life. Life came out of this. The forgiveness of sins, freedom from the knife and from the cross for us, an eternal welcome into God's family. And therefore, essentially what the, the, the Jerusalem Council is all about is moving forward because Jesus Christ took the ultimate knife and he took the ultimate cross in our place for our sins. By all means, do not put any unnecessary smaller crosses into the life of anybody else who is seeking to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Okay, let's, let's work out just a couple quick applications here. I got two of them for you here today. The first one is this. The gospel is non-negotiable. What does that mean? It's interesting and probably noteworthy that James and Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they don't take a vote on any of this. You notice that? They don't take a vote. They don't cast lots. We see the early Christian church doing that sometimes in their decision-making. They don't do that here. 
Why? Because this is non-negotiable. Freedom, uh, non-legalistic freedom is an essential component of the gospel. When you start adding things to the gospel and you say, to be truly saved, it is the good news of Jesus Christ plus this or that. It's no longer the gospel. It's no longer grace. When you're saved by grace plus something, it's no longer grace. The gospel is truly Jesus plus nothing else. And the church cannot tolerate any additional pluses because it muddies the gospel. Church rules, and I'm not talking, by the way, about church policy. Every church and every organization needs policies in order to maintain order and propriety and all that kind of stuff. But church rules are often kind of sneaky, kind of quiet, kind of simple, and kind of pre-existing built-in culture. But the gospel is not a style. It's not a culture. It's not a skin color. It's not a type of dress. It's not a haircut. It's not a culture. It's not any of that. It's the good news of Jesus Christ plus nothing. And therefore, we not only should allow diversity, we should welcome and embrace diversity because when with the gospel we embrace all sorts of different cultural forms and types, what it does is it cuts down the self-righteous human flesh that is always trying to prop up the idea that what I do, what I am, how I look, whatever else is better than everybody else because I do it my way. That's sinful pride. When we embrace different forms and types with the gospel, and proclaim the gospel through different forms and through different types, it shows the gospel plus nothing. Um, the gospel ultimately is the good news that Jesus died to save us from our sins and he gifted us his righteousness, his obedience to the law, plus nothing. The church has to stand up and fight whenever anybody else is trying to add a plus. By the way, this Jerusalem Council, I think, you know, I've been struggling this past week wondering why this event, which I'm inclined to think is as important as any event in the early Christian church, why more Christians don't know about it or are, are able to explain it. And I think because it comes off to people as like a theological debate. And modern people, generally speaking, don't like theological debates. Uh, we have a tendency to believe that all opinions are equally valid. We have a tendency to think that theology is just abstract stuff without any real life like implications attached to it. That's nonsense. Theology, doctrine. Doctrine is like the coding underneath a software program. So most of us just use software programs, right, on our computers. But if you talk to an actual software developer, they know the language of the coding that creates the software program. And if you said the coding doesn't make any difference, the only thing that matters is actually the software itself, they would say, you don't know what you're talking about. The, the software is the coding. It's the stuff underneath that makes it what it is. A different way of looking at it is, is Doctrine is like the engine underneath the hood of the car. It's the cellular level of wellness. And therefore, you know, I, some people might say, as a pastor, you have to say that. Well, yes, I do have to say that. That's part of my job. But I'm telling you the way it actually is. If you, if you are off by just an inch, and history proves this, if you're off by an inch when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole program eventually will crash. And the whole car will eventually break down. And the whole entity and creature will actually die. And therefore, the Christian church has to stand up and fight when anybody tries to even insinuate that anything, the gospel plus anything, is equivalent to salvation. No, it's the gospel plus nothing. Jesus and grace plus nothing. Okay, so the gospel is non-negotiable. Here's my final thought. The gospel is also extraordinarily flexible. There is a Yale professor by the name of Laman Sana who in the um, early part of the 2000s, he wrote a book called Who's religion is Christianity, the gospel beyond the West. And Lamansana is very interesting. He's born in Gambia, 
which is in Western Africa. And he, he, basically the whole book is about how the Christian faith exploded into sub-Saharan Africa, which, by the way, if you don't know, uh, most sociologists will tell you by perhaps by the year 2050, the epicenter of Christianity in the world will be in sub-Saharan Africa, which would have been like unthinkable 100, 150 years ago. But Lamansana would say the reason that Christianity has spread throughout sub-Saharan Africa in a way that Islam did not is because the Christian faith did not try to de-Africanize the continent. Rather, it enriched Africa's pre-existing forms. In other words, when converting to Christianity, the Africans did not have to convert to becoming European in their culture first. And that was powerful. Now, here's the thing. Traditional religious legalists don't understand this. And for that matter, people who consider themselves perhaps very open-minded on the other end of the spectrum, uh, modern secular rationalists, they don't understand this really either. Cultural forms are fine. Cultural forms are wonderful. Cultural forms are beautiful. But cultural forms need Jesus if they have any lasting meaning, and cultural forms do not add anything to the message of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is not any amount of forced cultural assimilation. It's only gospel proclamation. And therefore, you know, there's, there's so many implications here that we could tease out. Uh, somebody commented to me um, after I had I'd worked through some of this message before, and they said, you're not going to talk about the, the being careful with the Christian freedoms that is, is mentioned at the end of this text. I don't feel the need to work out all the implications today because six weeks from now we celebrate the festival of Pentecost. And Pentecost is the ultimate working out of the freedoms that the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us to carry out the good news of Jesus to all nations. So I'm not going to work that out all here today. We're going to work that out in six weeks. We're going to come back to this. Today I want you simply to absorb this thought. Legalism, the idea of adding anything to the gospel of Jesus, tries God's patience, provokes God's anger. Instead, we have to fight for the idea of the gospel plus nothing. And we will call to repentance anyone, including ourselves, who ever even insinuate that it requires not only the grace of Jesus Christ, but anything else would be necessary for salvation. And therefore, we also commit to this idea that we will enjoy all of the freedom that the gospel entitles us to. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, truly the only thing that we need is you. So we ask that you help us be willing to let go of everything else. Our comfort, our preference, our culture. If it might mean one more person would follow you and live in your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.